Okay, welcome again to Free Association. Um, I'm doing this as a live show, but really it's just a recording. Um, I've got a presentation from the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. Uh, it's about 38 minutes long. Uh, this is the presentation that got Robert Malone banned from Twitter a couple of days ago. So I, I don't know how vi how visual it is, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just let it play, and as long as there's a, a good commentary, I'll let it I'll let it roll for thirty eight minutes. If it's too visual, I'll I'll stop it and I'll, I'll talk for a while. But uh, let's just see. I've given them credit, so it's education and fair use. And here we go. Pfizer inhalations for COVID-19 and why they do more harm than good. We're the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and our alliance of over 500 independent Canadian doctors, scientists, and healthcare practitioners is committed to providing quality, balanced, evidence-based information to the Canadian public about COVID-19 so that hospitalizations can be reduced, lives saved, and our country safely restored to normal as quickly as possible. We support the doctor-patient relationship and personalized care, informed consent and treatment options, free and open scientific discourse, and safe and effective vaccines. We'll begin with the most important premise in medicine, first do no harm. The federal, provincial, and municipal governments in Canada have a responsibility to protect the health of Canadians as well as our charter rights and freedoms. Any medical approved by Health Canada must first be proven safe. Due diligence and research, as well as adherence to the established protocols of the doctor-patient relationship, informed consent, and scientific inquiry are essential to carrying out that responsibility. Deviating from those practices, causing harm, and failing to disclose risks of harm is negligent at best. It's important to understand the hierarchy of scientific evidence. When you're talking about proving things to be either safe or harmful, you need to rely on the best evidence. As you can see from the table on the right, a randomized control trial is level one evidence, the highest form of evidence there is. It's considered the gold standard, and it's the only way to prove that something is true. Models, which we've heard a lot of during the pandemic, are actually the lowest form of evidence, level five or lower, as they're considered to be expert opinion or speculation. Policy should always be determined by the highest level of evidence available, which is level one. So first, we're going to talk about Pfizer's original trial report that came out in December 31st of 2020. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it showed two months worth of safety and efficacy data. It described how the trial started with over 43,000 people divided into a treatment group and a control group, and how for two months, they followed them to see who developed COVID-19. The report claimed that the inoculations were safe and showed 95% efficacy seven days after the second dose. But that 95% was actually relative risk reduction. Absolute risk reduction was only 0.84%. Many people don't know the difference between relative and absolute risk reduction, so we're just going to show you what that means. Pfizer reported that its vaccine shows a 95% efficacy. That sounds like it protects you 95% of the time, right? But that's not actually what that number means. That 95% refers to the relative risk reduction, but it doesn't tell you how much your overall risk is reduced by vaccination. For that, we need absolute risk reduction. In the Pfizer trial, 8 out of 18,198 people who were given the vaccine 
developed COVID-19. In the unvaccinated placebo group, 162 people got it, which means that even without the vaccine, the risk of contracting COVID-19 was extremely low at 0.88%, which the vaccine then reduced to 0.04%. So the net benefit, or the absolute risk reduction that you're being offered with a Pfizer vaccine is 0.84%. That 95% number, that refers to the relative difference between 0.88% and 0.04%. That's what they call 95% relative risk reduction. And relative risk reduction is well known to be a misleading number, which is why the FDA recommends using absolute risk reduction instead, which begs the question, how many people would have chosen to take the COVID-19 vaccines had they understood that they offered less than 1% benefit? So the first thing you need to understand about how Pfizer ran this study is that it didn't go according to their stated plan. There was an inoculated group and a placebo group of about 21,000 participants each. And they began the phase three trials in July of 2020. And the study was blind, which means the participants didn't know which group they were in. And this blinded trial was supposed to go on for three years until May 2nd of 2023. That would mark the end of phase three of the clinical trial. At that point, the trial would be unblinded, which means the placebo group would be offered the intervention if it were indicated and if they consented. But that's not what happened. Instead, After they had accumulated and released only two months' worth of trial data, Pfizer unblinded the study, which means they told all of the placebo and inoculation group participants which group they were in and offered the placebo group participants the option of moving over to the inoculated group. Most of them took Pfizer up on that offer, and the vast majority of the placebo group moved into the inoculated group, which means that quite early in 2021, there was no longer a control group to compare the inoculated group to, which means that for the rest of the trial, There's no way to assess long-term effectiveness or safety. Now we'll move ahead to Pfizer's six-month report data, and that came out on September 15th of 2021. This report indicated an efficacy of 91.3%, which means the inoculated group showed a reduction in positive cases compared to the placebo group. But shockingly, the inoculated group also showed an increase in illness and deaths. Now this is a problem because there's no benefit to a reduction in cases if it comes at a cost of increased illness and death. Let's look first at the increased illness that can be found in the Pfizer trial data. On the right, you'll see Pfizer's efficacy numbers, which they present quite proudly in their report, and it shows a reduction of positive cases of 91% in favor of the inoculation arm of the trial. On the left is a table showing the adverse events from the trial. You won't actually find it in the report itself. You have to dig into the supplementary appendix in order to find it. We've included a link to it in the PDF version of this presentation. And this table is really concerning because if you recall, the justification for the inoculations was to reduce illness and hospitalization. Yet here we see that the inoculation arm showed an increase in adverse events in almost every category. For example, if you look at related adverse events, which are adverse events that the investigators determined to be caused by the investigational product, there were over 5,000 in the experimental arm and just over 1,000 in the placebo group. So that was a 300% increase for people who'd taken the inoculation. And when we look at severe adverse events, things that significantly interfere with normal daily function, there was a 75% increase. And then if we look at serious adverse events, which is anything that involves a visit to the ER or the hospital or any long-term side effects, there's a 10% increase in the inoculated arm. So what we're looking at here is actual level one evidence from a randomized controlled trial that the Pfizer inoculations increase illness rather than reduce it. 
This is the opposite of what governments need the inoculations to do, and it means that they have failed to prove that these inoculations are safe. It doesn't matter if you reduce case numbers if you are endangering people by making them sicker than they would have been otherwise. Not only is there an increased risk of illness with the inoculations, there's also an increased risk of death. On the left, you'll see a table that shows deaths and causes of deaths that occurred prior to unblinding, meaning deaths that occurred in the first two months of the trial. As one of the justifications for the inoculations was to protect people from death, you would expect to see a reduction in deaths on the inoculation arm. Instead, their deaths are actually slightly higher, at 15 deaths for the inoculation arm versus 14 for the placebo arm. So that already looks bad for the Pfizer inoculation, but it actually gets worse in the months after unblinding, which is when placebo participants started crossing over and getting the inoculation, because five more people died, and all of them had received the inoculation. Pfizer didn't put these deaths in a table like the others. We actually found them buried in the text of the report. Three people from the original inoculation and two people who had originally been in the placebo arm but had crossed over and taken the inoculation died. So that gives us 20 total deaths in the inoculation arm versus 14 in the placebo. This increase in deaths is level one evidence of harm because it comes from a randomized control trial. And again, these trials were supposed to prove the inoculation safe, but they didn't. Instead, they proved that the inoculations cause harm, including death. And the kinds of deaths we see here are also concerning. You can see highlighted in Aqua that there were three deaths attributed to COVID-19 in total. There was one in the inoculation arm versus two in the placebo arm. So that's conceivably a reduction in COVID-19 deaths. But when you look at cardiovascular-related events in red, there were 14 in total with almost twice as many in the inoculation arm. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves, what went wrong? And if you look at how the trials were designed and executed, you can actually see how this could happen. The failures to follow established, high-quality safety and efficacy protocols were evident right from the beginning. Pfizer did not follow established protocols for vaccine development. Normally, vaccine development looks like this, with a timeline of 10 years. And as you can see, safety is a key focus. Rarely, a vaccine can be developed in as little as five years, but there's still a lot of time devoted to safety. For the COVID-19 inoculations, everything was done in under a year. Animal testing was skipped, Phases two and three were combined, and after two months of the combined phase two and three, emergency use was authorized. The trials were unblinded, and the rollout began. Now, we've heard a persistent claim that the COVID-19 inoculation products don't need to be tested because mRNA technology has already undergone extensive testing. But mRNA technology is the delivery mechanism, not the inoculation itself. So that's like saying, since we've used syringes safely in the past, anything injected via syringe is safe. And actually, our scientists still have concerns about the effects of the mRNA delivery mechanism itself. One of the problems with the trial was misleading demographics. The age distribution in terms of people who are affected by COVID-19 differs substantially from the age distribution in the trial. For example, if you look at the people who are most at risk from death from COVID-19, you'll see that 85% of them are over the age of 75. But if you look at the Pfizer trial demographics, you'll see that only 4% of the trial subjects are over the age of 75. So this is a problem because when designing a trial for the efficacy and safety of a potential treatment, the focus should be on the target population who could most benefit from that treatment. Instead, Pfizer chose participants from a younger demographic that would A, be less likely to need a vaccine, B, be less likely to suffer an adverse event during a trial, and C, more likely respond well to a vaccine as the elderly have comparatively poor immune responses.
Not only did they show us misleading demographics in terms of age, but also in terms of health. They tested the inoculation on people who were much healthier than those most affected by COVID-19 in the real world. In the real world, 95% of people who have died with COVID-19 have had at least one comorbidity listed as the cause of death. And the average is actually four comorbidities. But in the Pfizer trial, only 21% of the participants had a coexisting condition. This has major implications for the rollout because we're being told that the inoculations are safe, yet many health conditions, in fact, a list several pages long in the Pfizer trial protocols, were actually excluded from the trials. They excluded pregnant women, breastfeeding women, people with allergies, with psychiatric conditions, immunocompromised people, people with bleeding disorders, people who had previously tested positive for COVID-19, people who had recently taken prescribed steroids, etc. So there has never been any data to make safety claims about those people and the inoculations, and yet they haven't been excluded from mandates and vaccine passports. They're being told it's safe to take the inoculations when it hasn't been proven that it's safe for them. These vaccines were tested on the healthy and then immediately given to the frailest members of our society the elderly, and people with multiple health conditions. This is both unscientific and unethical, and probably contributed to both the rise in COVID-19 deaths and all-cause mortality. Pfizer also used inadequate control groups for its trial. The trial only observed two groups, the unexposed and inoculated, so people who had never had COVID and were given an inoculation, and then the unexposed and uninoculated, people who had never had COVID and didn't receive an inoculation. Those were the two groups that they looked at, but that was limited. It didn't yield a lot of the information that we need to know. They should also have included exposed and inoculated and exposed and uninoculated because we need to know if it's safe for people who have recovered to then take the inoculation. We need to know what that does to effectiveness. And we also need to know how the inoculations compare with natural immunity, people who are exposed but uninoculated. Natural immunity is the standard that the inoculations should be compared to. And the fact that they avoided that comparison shows you they were not confident the results would be in their favor. The Pfizer trial also used low-quality safety science because they didn't track biomarkers. There's a great paper from Toxicology Reports, and there's a link to it in the PDF version of this presentation, called Why Are We Vaccinating Children Against COVID-19? And the authors talked about the fact that while the Pfizer trials tested for antibodies and checked adverse events in terms of symptoms, they didn't test for adverse events at the subclinical, that is, pre-symptom, level. Now, this is important because symptoms and disease are typically endpoints of processes that can take months or years or decades to surface. By the time you get to symptoms, things can have gone pretty wrong. So if you think about diabetes or high blood pressure, where the disease can be quite advanced before any symptoms occur. As they were already doing blood tests for antibodies, Pfizer could easily have been tracking biomarkers that would have been early warning indicators for disease caused by the inoculations. High quality safety science would have meant that they should have tested before and after the inoculation for D-dimer levels for evidence of enhanced coagulation and clotting. Several of our doctors have noticed increased D-dimer levels in inoculated patients presenting with stroke-like symptoms, and there's a link to a video with one of them available on our PDF. They could also have tested for markers of inflammation, for cardiac damage, for barrier permeability, for hypoxia, for predisposition to Alzheimer's disease, for increased disposition to autoimmune disease. As the authors of the paper pointed out, microclots resulting from the inoculation that were insufficient to cause observable symptoms could raise the baseline for thrombotic disease. This means that while you might not have an adverse event now, it could set you up for sickness next year or the year after. One of the biggest issues with this trial is that the wrong clinical endpoints were used. 
Pfizer should have focused on all-cause mortality and illness. The fear with COVID-19 was that it was going to A, kill people, or B, make them sick. So any COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial should have set out to ask the question, do people who take the vaccines have less illness and death than those who don't? Illness and death should be the clinical endpoints. And not just illness and death with COVID-19, but any and all illness and death in order to make sure that the vaccines are not causing harm. And this is actually well known. It was learned decades ago with cancer drug trials. At first, pharmaceutical companies used a clinical endpoint of, did the drug shrink the cancer? And if it did, they called it effective. But as it turned out, the drugs were not only killing cancer, they were killing patients. So they were forced to change the design of their trials and switch to all-cause mortality as the primary endpoint instead to show that people who receive the drug actually live longer than people who don't. So what should have happened in this case, after the proper early safety phases of development were completed, was they should have asked the question, do people who take the vaccines have less illness and death than those who don't? And if the answer was yes, they should have proceeded to long-term safety studies. And if the answer was no, they should have gone back to the drawing board. And that's the scientific method. Instead, what actually happened, without the proper early safety phases of development having been completed, was that they asked the question, do people who take the vaccines test positive for COVID-19 less often? And when the answer was yes, they just proceeded to a worldwide rollout. And there was never any real chance, given the setup of the trial, that the answer could be no. Now let's move on to spread reduction. Although vaccine passports are now being used to ostensibly prevent or reduce transmission of COVID-19, this outcome was actually never studied in the trial, so it's inappropriate to assign that capability to these inoculations. There's no evidence at all that they reduce the spread or transmission of disease, and that was never even one of the study's endpoints. Moving on to testing failures and subjective testing. The Pfizer trials did not test all participants for COVID-19. Instead, they instructed their investigators to test only those with a COVID-19 symptom and then left it up to their discretion to decide what that was. So that means that asymptomatic infection would be missed entirely. And it means a high level of subjectivity was introduced to the study because an investigator actually had the ability to sway the results by deciding to test or not to test. This lack of objective, systematic testing actually makes the results of the trial unreliable. All participants should have been tested. There's considerable missing data in the study, which is also concerning. First of all, let's just go over the endpoint data again. So the endpoint, as you recall, is confirmed COVID cases. And in the original trial, the results of which were published on December 31st, 2020, the inoculated group had eight cases and the placebo group had 162 cases. And that meant a 95% relative risk reduction in favor of the inoculation arm. But when you're dealing with such a small number of cases, any change could impact the results significantly, which brings us to the loss to follow-up numbers. So loss to follow-up means that they actually lost touch with these subjects and they can't confirm whether they got sick or not, whether they even died, they don't know. So as you can see, there's 80 loss to follow-up participants in the inoculated group. That's 10 times more than the confirmed COVID cases that they had. So if a significant proportion of those 80 had actually been positive for COVID-19, it would actually dramatically change the results. And it gets worse because there were also what's called suspected but unconfirmed cases. This means that these people were actually identified as being symptomatic for COVID-19, but they were never actually tested for it. Discretion for testing, if you recall, was left up to the investigator. If even a small proportion of them were positive, it would present a real problem for the overall results. 
The fact that the loss to follow-up and suspected but unconfirmed numbers are higher, and here even significantly higher, than the endpoint numbers means that this data is unreliable. The study should not have been accepted. In normal scientific practice, they would have returned to investigate further. Now, you may say there were also high numbers of loss to follow-up and suspected but unconfirmed in the placebo group as well, but that actually still could have changed the results significantly, and we'll show you why. So here you can see the confirmed cases, symptoms plus PCR test, which give us a 95% relative risk reduction. And here we have a much greater number of suspected but not confirmed cases. So there are COVID symptoms, but no PCR tests. If we assume that all of them were positive for COVID-19 and add them to the cases that were confirmed with tests, you can see that the overall numbers of positive cases are much higher on both the inoculated and placebo arms, with the placebo still having a higher number of cases. However, the difference in proportion between them has changed, and the relative risk reduction number is now down to only 19%. And remember, Pfizer needed a 50% relative risk reduction in order to be eligible for emergency use authorization. Now let's talk about the 12 to 15-year-old adolescent trial. For the adolescents, the inoculation is really all risk and no benefit. The trial was severely underpowered, as a study this small will not reliably show up risk for adverse events. There was an inoculated group of 1,005, and zero of them tested positive for COVID-19, and a placebo group of 978, and 18 of them tested positive for COVID-19. So Pfizer claimed these were great results. But since adolescents are at statistically zero risk of death from COVID-19, and very low risk of severe illness, in fact, the New York Times said in October of this year that for children without a serious medical condition, the danger of severe COVID is so low that it's difficult to quantify. The inoculation is of very little benefit to them, but it does present a very real risk of adverse events. However, the adolescent Pfizer study wasn't actually designed to find adverse events because a serious adverse event, including death, that occurred even in one out of 800 kids might not even show up in a sample size of 1,005 people. But in this case, the danger signal did come through. Among the inoculated adolescents, there was at least one serious adverse event, and her name was Maddie DeGarry. Maddie DeGarry is a 12-year-old trial participant who developed a serious reaction after her second dose of the inoculation and was hospitalized within 24 hours. She developed gastroparesis, nausea, vomiting, erratic blood pressure, memory loss, brain fog, headaches, dizziness, fainting, seizures, verbal and motor tics, menstrual cycle issues, lost feeling from the waist down, lost bowel and bladder control, and she had to have a feeding tube because she lost her ability to eat. She's been hospitalized many times since then, and for the past 10 months, she's been wheelchair-bound and fed via tube. In their report to the FDA, Pfizer described her injuries as functional abdominal pain. And there's a link to the FDA report below. This is unconscionable and certainly opens up the possibility that other adverse events have been suppressed or misrepresented. In terms of 5 to 11-year-olds, the inoculation is an unacceptable risk to their health. In this table, Pfizer, using predictive modeling, acknowledges that the inoculations will cause myocarditis in children, see the columns in red, but they optimistically claim that there will be zero deaths from this myocarditis, see the column in yellow. It's speculation on their part, the low-level evidence of a predictive model. But let's just say it's true, and there will be no deaths. There's still no justification for giving children myocarditis. First do no harm should apply here, but the government has now normalized the expectation of heart problems from these inoculations among children to the point that sick kids is actually putting out brochures on how to deal with them. The way to deal with them is don't give them products that will harm their hearts, because myocarditis 
is actually very serious. It's damage to the heart and it's not reversible. Myocarditis is an inflammatory process of the myocardium, which is the heart muscle. Severe myocarditis weakens your heart so that the rest of your body doesn't get enough blood. Blood clots can form in your heart, leading to a stroke or a heart attack. And the mortality rate is up to 20% at six and a half years. So while Pfizer may be correct in that their inoculations might not cause any immediate deaths, we maintain that a one in five chance of dying in six and a half years is unequivocally an unacceptable risk for children. But the FDA says it is an acceptable risk for children. They have actually abandoned the first do-no-harm principle. Remember, medical interventions are supposed to be proven safe before they're rolled out in the population. Yet Dr. Eric Rubin, one of the 18 members of the FDA advisory panel who voted to approve the inoculations for children from 5 to 11, actually said the opposite and suggested that a population-level rollout was an appropriate way to test for adverse events. But... We're never going to learn about how safe the vaccine is unless we start giving it. Um, that's just the way it goes. That's how we found out about rare complications of other vaccines, like the rotavirus vaccine. And I, I do think that we are going to, I, I do think we should vote to approve it. It's worth noting here that Dr. Eric Rubin is the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the publisher of the Pfizer trial reports. Direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs is actually illegal in Canada. Yet politicians from all levels of government are marketing inoculations to children using cartoons and mascots. They're proclaiming that the inoculations are safe, yet the data isn't there to back that up. In addition to admitting that their inoculations can cause myocarditis, Pfizer also admits right in their report that their long-term immune response efficacy and safety data is limited and that their studies weren't powered to find rare side effects. And that's true, as the inoculation was only tested on about 1,500 kids. How many parents know that? How many would take their kids to get this shot if they were informed of this? The law of informed consent says that they should be, but it's not happening. The British Medical Journal, one of the oldest and most respected medical journals in the world, has actually called Pfizer out for serious issues in the execution of their trials. On November 2nd, 2021, they released an article about their investigation into Ventavia, which was one of the research companies that Pfizer hired to conduct the trials. The whistleblower is a regional director who actually reported her company to the FDA for falsifying data, for unblinding participants, for not following up and testing participants who reported symptoms, and for mislabeling specimens. Several other employees backed up her account. Despite all this, neither Pfizer nor the FDA ever audited or investigated the research company. Pfizer never disclosed the problems in its emergency use authorization application, and in fact, Pfizer has now hired that same researcher, Ventavia, to run four more COVID-19 trials. So all this to say that it's not surprising that we're seeing the issues that we are in the six-month trial report. And also in the six-month report, Pfizer actually manipulated their efficacy data. They took the results from their adult trial, which started in July of 2020, and then they mixed in the results from the 12- to 15-year-old trial, despite the fact that the adolescent trial actually started four months later. So since it's well known that the efficacy of the inoculations wanes over time, this gave a false boost to the efficacy numbers. The efficacy of those two cohorts should have been reported separately, not presented as one combined result. But without that boost, their efficacy number likely would have fallen. So let's go back to the six-month results that we revealed at the beginning of this presentation. And let's remember that drug manufacturers are required to have these trials to prove safety and efficacy. But in the case of this Pfizer trial, positive COVID cases was the wrong clinical endpoint for efficacy as it should have been illness and death. And not only did Pfizer fail to prove safety, they actually proved harm. 
This is despite the fact that they tried really hard to stack the deck in their favor throughout the trials by testing as few factors as they could, as little as they could, by using younger, healthier people than the inoculations would ultimately be rolled out to, by using small, underpowered groups, etc. And despite all of this, the harm from these inoculations still came through in their data. One can only imagine how much worse it would have been had they done a proper study that was genuinely looking for harm. However, the harm is there, and it's clear. So how is this harm playing out in the real world? Well, governments are assuring us that they're monitoring the rollout closely, and that if there are problems, they will find them. But is that true? How are they monitoring them? So if you look at these two charts, the one on the left represents active surveillance, and the one on the right represents passive surveillance. And there's a dramatic difference between passive versus active monitoring of adverse events. In the left chart, we see examples of active monitoring from the trials. In the first bar, we can see solicited adverse events from the Pfizer trial, where people were given an app and asked to choose from a fixed list which adverse event they were experiencing for the first seven days. And almost 80% of people reported something. 5% even reported severe adverse events. And if you look at the third bar, that's unsolicited. This was a blank journal entry. People were to report any adverse event they experienced for a month. And we can see the level of adverse events reported is around 30%. Then we go to the chart on the right. That chart represents the passive surveillance system that the US, Canada, and UK governments are using for the vaccine rollouts. In our countries, the government waits for enterprising doctors and individuals to report adverse events to them. Health Canada not only waits, but actually gatekeeps. It's very difficult to report a COVID-19 inoculation adverse event in Canada. A doctor has to do it on their own time, and it's an involved process, and then it goes through several levels of bureaucratic approval before Health Canada even sees it. And then they decide whether or not they think it was related to the inoculation. The result is that adverse events don't show up. It's not reasonable to believe that an inoculation that elicited adverse events in 78% of trial subjects elicited essentially zero adverse events in a population-wide rollout. What's happening is that the signal has been lost. It's not that those adverse events are gone, it's just that we're not finding them because we're not looking for them. But some signals are getting through. We're hearing more and more about rising incidents of heart issues in young people. Ontario Public Health is well aware of this as they published a report on it, but they seem very inconsistent in their concerns. On September 9th of 2021, Ontario Public Health recommended young men between the ages of 18 and 24 not take the Moderna shot because of a 1 in 5,000 risk of myocarditis. They suggested the Pfizer shot instead, which has a 1 in 28,000 risk of myocarditis. But as recently as May 8th, 2021, Ontario had stopped the AstraZeneca shot because of a 1 in 60,000 risk of clotting side effects, which was considered too high at that point. So their priorities are quite inconsistent. And all of this looks like a lot more deaths in a lot younger people than is normal. And it seems to be especially showing up in athletes, people who really push their heart rates up when they're exercising. A German news site actually put together a list of over 75 known cases of athletes collapsing and even dying in the last five months. The link is here and you can check it out in the PDF version of this presentation. And an Israeli news site analyzed the number of sudden deaths on the pitch or in mid-play of members of the International Football Association, FIFA. Over the past 20 years, the average number of FIFA sudden deaths on the pitch was 4.2 per year. But in 2021, there were actually 21 deaths, five times the normal average. These incidents are supposed to be rare, and we can't ignore that they no longer are.
High school senior is in the hospital after collapsing on the tennis courts. Breaking new details on the deaths of a high school soccer player. Finland, Denmark star man Christian Eriksson collapsing towards the end of the first half. The Kennedy High community mourning tonight after one of their high school football players died. A South Carolina high school football player has died after collapsing at football practice. Star college basketball player collapsing on the court. We want to warn you, the video may be difficult to watch. Florida Gators starts young. That video actually goes on much longer. We've included the link in our PDF if you'd like to watch the whole thing. On November 17th, 2021, the FDA released the first batch of what will ultimately be over 300,000 pages that they were ordered by a court to provide to satisfy a freedom of information request by a group called Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency, who wanted access to the data used by the FDA to approve Pfizer's COVID-19 inoculations. Now, the FDA didn't actually want to give it to them, and they've asked the court to give them 50 years to release the documents. And it's easy to see why. Because the post-marketing pharmacovigilance report submitted to the FDA, where Pfizer tracked real-world events occurring in the first two and a half months of the rollout, was extremely disturbing. In the first two and a half months, there were over 1,200 deaths. There were over 25,000 nervous system adverse events. Under safety concerns, Pfizer listed anaphylaxis and vaccine-associated enhanced disease. This document alone should be incriminating for any agency who saw it and called these inoculations safe. Now let's get to the considerable evidence of conflict of interest. Pfizer is making billions, over $33 billion in 2021 alone, and probably much more than that at this point. When the incentive is such an astronomical sum of money, it only makes sense to ensure rigorous oversight of the process and as many safeguards as possible are in place. Because their agenda is not the same as ours. Their agenda is their shareholders and their bottom line, not public health. And anyone looking at Pfizer's history would know that caution is warranted, because over the years, Pfizer has been found to have engaged in many spurious and criminal activities, including lying to get federal approval for a heart valve that fractured and killed hundreds of patients worldwide, conducting clinical trials on African children without their parents' consent, after which some of the children died, bribing doctors, suppressing research, manipulating studies, withholding information that its products caused cancer, fraudulent marketing, and many more. They've paid billions actual billions in fines and settlements for their actions. And if you want to read the details for yourselves, you can check out these links on the PDF version of the presentation. Now, nowhere is Pfizer's conflict of interest more apparent than in the authors of its reports. Using the six-month report as an example, you can see that 84% of the study authors have conflicts. So they're either employed by Pfizer, or they have employment and stock with Pfizer, or they've gotten grants from Pfizer, or they've been hired as consultants by Pfizer, or they've run clinical trials for Pfizer. In terms of the people who didn't have conflicts, there were only five, and they don't represent any of the main authors. The leading author, the corresponding author, and the last author all have conflicts of interest. The most eye-popping example of conflict is the two founders of BioNTech, who are a husband-wife team and who are also authors of this report. These two people alone profited to the tune of $9 billion from the Pfizer inoculation. Another issue is that the CDC seems to have redefined vaccine to suit political and pharmaceutical interests. So for many years prior to 2021, the CDC definition of vaccine was on their website, and it was a product that stimulates a person's immune system to produce immunity to a specific disease, protecting the person from that disease. But then, on July 27th of 2021, the head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, went on CNN and admitted that the COVID-19 vaccines 
do not provide immunity, that they don't stop people from catching or transmitting COVID. And then on August 18th, 2021, Joe Biden announced booster shots for all Americans. Two weeks later, on September 2nd, 2021, the CDC changed the definition of vaccine on their website. It now says, a preparation that is used to stimulate the body's immune response against diseases. So, no more mention of immunity and no more mention of protection against a disease. This looks a lot like fraud. And you'll notice that we don't use the word vaccine to talk about Pfizer's products. We call them inoculations. And this is because we still adhere to the correct definition of vaccine as something that provides immunity and is protective against disease. So a lot of times people can't believe that these things that we're saying are true. They say, well, if this were true, wouldn't the media be reporting it? And I think this video answers that question. Good Morning America is brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline. Brought to you by Pfizer. Making a difference. Brought to you by Pfizer. CNN Tonight. Brought to you by Pfizer. Early start. Brought to you by Pfizer. Friday night on Aaron Burnett out front. Brought to you by Pfizer. This week with George Stephanopoulos is brought to you by Pfizer. This weather report brought to you by Pfizer. Today's countdown to the royal wedding is brought to you by Pfizer. And now a CBS Sports update brought to you by Pfizer. Meet the press. Data download. Brought to you by Pfizer. This portion of CBS This Morning sponsored by Pfizer. On how to find the hidden sugars in the American family diet. Sponsored by Pfizer. Our governments are ultimately responsible for all of this. Pfizer has been indemnified for damages in case their inoculations hurt or kill people. And Pfizer profits to the tune of billions if the trials are successful. No reasonable person would have given Pfizer carte blanche in such a situation. Instead, they would engage in rigorous oversight and hold all vaccine manufacturers to the highest scientific standards. But that's something that was not done. It's our position that the inoculations should be withdrawn immediately. It's clear that Pfizer and the agencies overseeing their trials failed to follow established high-quality safety and efficacy protocols from the beginning. We have presented level one evidence of harm from Pfizer's own trial data. Any government which has approved these inoculations, much less mandated them, knew or should have known from the available data that harm would be caused to its citizens. Any government that approved this medical intervention for its citizens should have ensured that the trial had the appropriate clinical endpoints and high-quality safety signs. And finally, any government official who possesses this evidence and continues to allow its citizens to be inoculated with a toxic agent is at the very least negligent. We've provided links to additional recommended reading and viewing in the PDF version of this presentation. So if you're watching this and you're horrified and you're asking, what can you do? We need you to hold them accountable. This evidence is a tool that you can use. It represents a real opportunity to hold our leaders accountable because this is not opinion or modeling or real world evidence that can be dismissed or manipulated, but level one evidence from a randomized control trial. As such, it has a high evidentiary value. We're asking you to call your MP and MPP and that you ask for a one hour meeting, preferably in person, but Zoom will work too. During this meeting, play them the video and provide them with the PDF version. Ask them questions like whether or not they were aware of all the issues with the Pfizer trial and what they plan to do now that they are. Get them to agree to a follow-up meeting where they commit to provide you with answers. Share this video with friends and family. Have group viewing sessions on Zoom and actually discuss it. 
Gone are the days when we can afford to leave these issues to other people. We all have to understand these things. Share this video and the PDF on social media, and when you do, please use the hashtags CCCA and More Harm Than Good so that we can find it. Please join our mailing list at CanadianCovidCarelines.org, and we'll update you with additional evidence as we have it. Follow us on social media. This link to our link tree, which you'll find on the PDF of this presentation, has a link to all our social accounts. And this presentation is available in PDF and video format on our website at CanadianCovidCareAlliance.org. Thank you so much for watching and listening, and thank you in advance for spreading this information far and wide. We can't make a change unless we all work together. There you go, that's the, the presentation that Dr. Robert Malone shared on Twitter that, that got him suspended from Twitter. At least that's the one he thinks he's doing it. So that's, that's all from me for the moment, and I'll see you again soon.